Hello and welcome to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Great to have you along with us. If your parish is following the tradition of the Church, then you likely noticed when you came into Mass on Sunday that the crucifix and other images, at least the images of Jesus, were covered up with a purple cloth. Now, uh, Sunday's Gospel tells us why that is, and we're going to look at that in just a minute. We're also going to talk later about a couple of important topics, and topics which are often conflated today, namely mercy and indifference. And quick preview, only one of them is a virtue. Uh, Also, we're going to be answering the question, are Catholic traditionalists or traditional Catholics fundamentalists? Okay, all that and more. But first, this Sunday was the beginning of Passion Tide, and so the Gospel from Passion Sunday in the extraordinary form of the Mass, taken from the Gospel of John, chapter 8, verses 46 through 59. At that time, Jesus said to the multitude of the Jews, Which of you shall convince me of sin? If I say the truth to you, why do you not believe me? He that is of God heareth the words of God. Therefore you hear them not, because you are not of God. The Jews therefore answered and said to him, Do we not say well that thou art a Samaritan and hast a devil? Jesus answered, I have not a devil, but I honor my father, and you have dishonored me. But I seek not my own glory. There is one that seeketh and judgeth. Amen, amen, I say to you, if any man keep my word, he shall not see death forever." The Jews therefore said, Now we know that thou hast a devil. Abraham is dead, and the prophets. And thou sayest, If any man keep my word, he shall not taste death forever. Art thou greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? And the prophets are dead. Whom dost thou make thyself? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. But it is my Father that glorifieth me, of whom you say that he is your God, and you have not known him, but I know him. And if I shall say that I know him not, I shall be like to you, a liar. But I do know him, and do keep his word. Abraham your father rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it, and was glad." The Jews therefore said to him, Thou art not yet fifty years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was made, I am. They took up stones therefore to cast at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. Thus far the words of the Holy Gospel. So beginning with the last point first, um... The gospel says that Jesus hid himself. That is why the crucifix and the statues of Jesus are covered on Passion Sunday to remind us that Jesus hid himself, and not out of fear. Obviously, he was preparing to undergo something uh, much worse than stoning, but because he gives himself up willingly. Remember, he says, uh, no one takes my life. I I give my life. No one takes it from me. Uh, The sacrifice is in his hands and it'll happen in his time. And it's also a reminder to us to forgive our enemies and not take revenge on them, which, of course, is precisely what he's going to do for us. 
And I, there's a lot more here. I mean, more than a, a single podcast could do justice to, much less a, a one segment. So I want to just focus on, on a couple of things. First off, we see that instead of reflecting on our Lord's words, instead of listening to him and, 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 and thinking about what he said, the Jews pour out their offended pride, right? And, and they, they abuse him instead. They call him a Samaritan. They say he has a devil. And that's because the price of clarity is the risk of giving offense, right? If you tell the truth, then there's going to be repercussions. The same thing is happening today. The proud find the truth offensive. And so instead of listening to the truth, the, the proud man uh, answers with slander and contempt. And, and but there's another thing here. Uh, Jesus says, if any man keep my word, he shall not taste, taste death forever. And the Jews respond, art thou greater than our father Abraham, who is dead? Whom dost thou make thyself? And then later Jesus says, Abraham, your father rejoiced that he might see my day. He saw it and was glad. And they respond, thou art not yet 50 years old, and hast thou seen Abraham? And, and Jesus says, amen, amen, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am is the very name of God in, in the Old Testament. So, and, but that's the answer to the question, who dost thou make thyself? Jesus claimed to be divine. He claimed to be God. This was the truth communicated, you know, at last with unvarnished charity, and, or clarity, rather. And what was their reaction? They took up stones to cast at him. And then, of course, you know, finally on Good Friday, they crucified him. But when Jesus says that, that Abraham uh, was glad to see his day, what does he mean? Well, in Hebrews chapter 11, St. Paul talks about uh, the faith and the early patriarchs, and then he focuses in on Abraham and the faith of Abraham. And he says in verse uh, 13, all these, talking about you know, the, the patriarchs, all these died in faith without having received what had been promised. But from a distance, they saw far ahead how those promises would be fulfilled and welcomed them. And this is in a, particularly true of Abraham. You know, the, he, he said he rejoiced that he might see my day. And Jesus says, and he saw it. He saw it and was glad. And it's because of the sacrifice of Isaac. God promised Abraham that he would be the father of a great nation. But when Abraham finally has a son, God asks him to sacrifice him. And, and in the face of what this is an apparent contradiction, Abraham's faith remains unshaken. He doesn't murmur against God. He doesn't question. He doesn't say, how can God's promise possibly be fulfilled if I have to sacrifice my only beloved son? On the contrary, he says to himself, his promises will surely be fulfilled, though how or in what way, I don't know. As St. Paul says in Hebrews eleven nineteen, he reasoned, that is Abraham, reasoned that God was able even to raise someone from the dead. And in a sense, he was given back Isaac from the dead. Now, we might wonder why God tried Abraham in the first place. I mean, didn't he know uh, that Abraham would be faithful? And of course, the answer to that is yes, God's omniscient. He knows everything. So that tells us that the test was not for God's sake, but for Abraham's, in order to give him the opportunity of practicing the virtue of faith and increasing his merits, drawing down greater blessings. And that's why uh, Almighty God so often tries us with all sorts of sufferings and, and adversities, because they can be of such great benefit to us. You know, talking about 
picking up your cross and, and carrying it daily. Uh, Thomas Akempis said, if we would only exert ourselves and take a firm stand in this battle, we would see how God comes to our aid, for he is always ready to help those who put their trust in him. Listen, he even provides occasions for us to do battle so that we will overcome and be victorious. Right? Also, um, in this episode, Isaac is, is a, a palpable type of Jesus. You know, his birth was promised repeatedly just as the coming of Christ. Uh, Isaac was the only beloved son of his father, just like Jesus is the only begotten son of God. Um, Isaac was obedient to his father and willing to give up his life, uh, just as Jesus was obedient even to death on the cross. Um, Isaac carried himself, carried himself up the mountain, the wood on which he was going to be sacrificed, the wood on which he would be slaughtered, just as Jesus carried up Mount Calvary, uh, the, the wooden cross on which he would be crucified. And Isaac was saved by death from the wonderful intervention of an angel, just as Jesus was brought back to life through the greatest of miracles, which we're going to celebrate on Easter, the resurrection. So we can see how Isaac is just a, a clear type of the Redeemer and of his death and resurrection, and why Jesus can see Abraham saw my day and was glad. But the one thing about uh, Isaac's sacrifice that's different from the sacrifice of Christ is that Abraham was ready, out of love, uh, for God to offer up his beloved son. But God wouldn't permit the sacrifice to take place because sinful man cannot uh, or could not be redeemed, cannot be redeemed by a mere human sacrifice. And that's why, you know, the, the old saying, our Lord paid a debt he didn't owe because we owed a debt we couldn't pay. But even that vicarious sacrifice is foreshadowed there on Mount Moriah with the ram that's caught in the thicket, right, who was sacrificed in the place of Isaac. That is also a type of Christ, the Lamb of God crowned with thorns, who offered himself as our representative on the Holy Cross. And then finally said, Jesus says, before Abraham was, I am. And he was speaking the truth with great clarity, not by analogy or with a simile or a parable, but, but straight out with the result that the crowd spontaneously tried to stone him to death, right? And then later, at his mockery of a trial uh, before the Sanhedrin, chief priest calls for the same clarity. He says, um, And the high priest, rising up in the midst, asked Jesus, Art thou the Christ, the Son of the blessed God? And Jesus said to him, I am. And you shall see the Son of Man sitting on the right hand of the power of God and coming with the clouds of heaven. And the high priest, rending his garment, saith, What need we any further witnesses? didn't matter that Jesus was telling the truth. And it's the same today. To tell the truth with clarity is to risk giving offense to the proud who are so easily offended. To tell the truth with clarity has repercussions, potentially worse than, uh, than you know, being banned from YouTube or, or, or Twitter. Okay? But the truth is worth suffering for and sacrificing for. At the very beginning of this uh, section in John 8, Jesus says, If you remain faithful to my word, you will be truly my disciples. You will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And that's no nonsense. Okay, when we come back, mercy, indifference, and lots more right here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio.
Welcome back to No Nonsense Catholic. I'm your host, Matthew Arnold, for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. Blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. The words of our Lord from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 7. And you hear a lot about mercy these days. And of course, we, all of us, must count on God's mercy uh, for our entrance into heaven. Now, in my office, I have a print of a painting by the pre-Raphaelite artist Edward Byrne Jones. And in the painting, an armored knight is kneeling at an outdoor shrine as the corpus of a life-size crucifix reaches out to embrace him. It's called The Merciful Knight, and it illustrates the 11th century story of Sir John Gualbert, a knight who forgave his enemy when he could have killed him, right? And you can actually see his enemy writing off in the background. Uh, And we see how he was rewarded by this miracle in token that his act of mercy had pleased God. Mercy is one of the great qualities of Christian chivalry. But what is mercy? Uh, Mercy is about not punishing a wrongdoer as severely as he deserves to be punished. The motive for mercy is love of neighbor and, and hope for his renewal. But mercy is impossible without an objective moral standard, and without the recognition that the wrongdoer's act deserves punishment. Now, I'm something of a, a collector of Bibles. Um, I have you know various translations with notes and commentaries, both Catholic primarily, but also some Protestant ones, uh, largely because some of them include charts. And I'm a, I'm a visual learner. I like to see things organized visually. And that's why I like infographics on the Internet. You know, infographics is a fancy name for chart. Um, but the charts in this one particular Bible um, are presented from an evangelical Christian viewpoint. And so in some cases, they're not all that useful to a Catholic, um, and uh, theologically speaking, right? And case in point, there's a chart called Why Jesus had to die, or why did Jesus have to die, it's called. And the chart lays out their reasons of why he had to die. But that's, that's fundamentally the wrong question. In fact, it begs the question, um, uh, you know, why did Jesus have to die begs the question, because before you ask why did he have to die, you should ask, did he have to die? And during his agony on, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus prayed, Father, if it is possible, let this chalice pass from me. But not my will, but thine be done. That's Matthew 26, 36. So the question is, could the chalice have passed? Uh, In other words, could the redemption have been accomplished without the cup of suffering, if the chalice had been taken away? And it might surprise you to to learn that the church's answer is yes. Uh, Jesus Christ is God the Son. He's the second person of the Blessed Trinity. As God... He is an infinite person, and his every act has an infinite value. Therefore, the blood of his circumcision would have been uh, sufficient to justify or uh, to satisfy the justice of uh, God the Father. But while it was technically unnecessary for him to die, it was most certainly fitting, because our Savior took upon himself the sins of mankind as our covenant representative. And the fact of the matter is, The sins of mankind deserved, merited death. His terrible, brutal, torturous execution is what we deserve for our sins. It's like he told John the Baptist uh, at the Jordan, I must fulfill all justice. 
So for a Catholic to say, for example, that the death penalty is always and everywhere inadmissible implies that a person guilty of a capital offense doesn't deserve capital punishment. And that, in my humble opinion, is inconsistent with the revelation of God. You know, of course, we know capital punishment isn't always necessary. It's certainly possible to show mercy to the guilty. But mercy is impossible without recognizing that capital crimes deserve capital punishment. In order to show mercy, one must first acknowledge justice. Now, I'm a medievalist, hence the, hence the Burne Jones painting. Um, and in the tales of King Arthur um, and his knights, you know, often the, the villainous knights are overthrown by, by the champions, Lancelot or, or Gawain or whomever, uh, only to cry mercy, right? The hero rushes off his helm, puts his sword to his throat, and he, and he begs for mercy. And typically, not always, but typically, their lives are spared by the hero under the condition that they hasten to Camelot and go before King Arthur and admit their guilt and then submit themselves to his just judgment, which is, you know, it, it's, a, it's a metaphor for conversion. And in many cases, these recreant knights abandon their bad customs for, you know, locking damsels in towers or whatever and embrace true chivalry and then join the Knights of the Round Table and become great heroes themselves. And, and that's the whole point. When the heroes show mercy, they give the recreant knights the chance to do what is right. And at the same time, they demonstrate their belief that even an apostate knight wants to do and can do the right thing with, with the help of God's grace. So, in other words, the mercy they show aids in their conversion, right? The conversion of the, of the villainous knight and his struggle to be good in his own personal quest for holiness. And so, if a person's action is wrong, okay, if they're guilty, but you withhold just punishment for their own good, then you have performed an act of mercy. Okay, so why bring all this up? Well, it's important, I think, because some Catholics today would withhold punishment, not from concerns of justice or, or concerns about human dignity, but, or even, you know, certainly not true love of the sinner, but because of indifference, from indifference towards sin. And that's not mercy. That is what's called laxity. That's an erroneous conscience where, where the mind decides on insufficient grounds that a sinful act is actually permissible or something that is gravely wrong really isn't that serious. Uh, and there are good reasons to show mercy, of course, not the least of which being the fifth beatitude, but there is never any legitimate reason to be lax because indifference is the opposite of love. You know, the opposite of I love you is not I hate you. The opposite of I love you is I don't care. And, and that is an insult to God. And it offers no support to the wrongdoer's effort to be and to do good. Right? It, it's, it's the sine qua non of the universal call to holiness that Catholics have a horror of committing sin. But it, today, it, it seems that many, if not most Catholics, even highly placed members of the clergy and, and uh, teachers, politicians, and so on, that they have a much greater horror of being considered judgmental than they do, uh, you know, have, they have a horror of sin or, or encouraging sin. You know, in fact, for Catholic leaders, they don't have to encourage sin just to fail to condemn it. You know, uh, to, their failure to condemn serious sins, including but not limited to abortion and, and uh, sexual immorality, 
I say for them to fail to condemn sin is itself the grave error of laxity, an error of which I dare say they have no horror at all. Uh, Hence the words of Pope St. Pius X. He said, All the strength of Satan's reign is due to the easygoing laxity of Catholics. He looks at the world and says, We're to blame. Mercy is not indifference. And laxity is a fault. And it is a fault that is directly related to my next topic, which is the sin of religious indifferentism. Religious indifference. That's the idea that all religions are more or less good and praiseworthy. Many modern Catholics have fallen into religious indifference. Uh, As with so many modern errors, some Catholics will turn to Vatican II to try and justify their religious indifference. You know, uh, after all, did not Vatican II finally teach us the value of ecumenism and, and religious liberty? Well, look, read my lips. Let me repeat for the thousand and first time, Vatican II did not change the teaching of the Church. The Church has always and ever taught that man's free will must be respected, and consequently there should never be any coercion in religion. But it doesn't follow from that that all religions are are therefore equal. In fact, it's in the Vatican II Declaration on Religious Liberty or Religious Freedom that states, and I quote, The Church is by the will of Christ the teacher of truth. It is her duty to give utterance to and authoritatively to teach that truth which is Christ himself, and also to declare and confirm by her authority those principles of the moral order which have their origin in human nature itself. So the Church has a divinely ordained office, a duty to teach Christ and to uphold both the divine and the natural law. Now, there's always people who are going to say it doesn't matter what you believe so long as you live right. Okay, See, but that attitude also is an insult to God. And this is the thing. When you encounter that, when somebody says it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you live right, you can say, you know what, that's an insult to God. Because as a Catholic, I believe that God sent his own son into the world to teach us the way to heaven. And he went to the cross for our sake. And if God went to such extremes to teach us, then it must have been very important to him that we know uh, what we know and what we believe. You know, rather than, you know, that, that we believe what he teaches rather than whatever we please. So to say that it doesn't matter what we believe, it's not only an insult to God but to imply that there's no difference between truth and error, that they're both equally good. See, that is indifferentism, and indifferentism is nonsense. Because if it were true that it doesn't matter what we believe so long as we live right, well, who decides what constitutes right living? The state, right? See, in that case, you know, summary execution without a just trial, like they have in some countries, would be right, because, because that's what the state does. But if not the state, then who? The majority? So when formerly Catholic Ireland became the first country to legalize abortion through the popular vote, did that make abortion right? See, clearly without faith in Christ, we cannot live right, which means right in the eyes of God, 
who so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. The only begotten Son who said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Not a way, not one way among many ways, not the preferred way, the way. And no one comes to the Father except by me. Now you can certainly deny that claim. But you can't pretend that this religion of Christ is the same as any or every other religion. And it doesn't mean that there can't be elements of truth in other religions, just that all religions cannot be equally true. And once again, we can go to Vatican II, right to the, you know, will the real Vatican II please stand up? The decree on ecumenism says, and I quote, the Catholic Church rejects nothing that's true and holy in other religions. She regards with sincere reverence those precepts and teachings which often reflect a ray of that truth which enlightens all men. We reverence truth wherever it's found because all truth comes from God because Christ is the truth. Therefore, the church proclaims and must ever proclaim Christ the way, the truth, and the life. And that's no nonsense. All right, back with lots more right after this. All right, welcome back, No Nonsense Catholic. In that last segment, we were talking about religious indifferentism, and that the Church teaches, um, quite clearly, that the Catholic Church alone possesses the fullness of the truth, which implies that other religions are in error as much as they disagree or contradict those you know, various elements that constitute that fullness. Like it says in the book of Acts, there is no salvation in anyone else nor is there any other name under heaven by which we can be saved. Now, insisting that Christ is the only way to the Father, you know, like Jesus said, uh, (laughs) leaves you open to the charge of fundamentalism. And the word fundamentalist is used as a pejorative term today. It's used to label someone as uh, an irrational religious extremist. Um, you know, the word fundamentalist is used to describe Islamic terrorists, for example. You know, but 100 years ago, that term was taken as a badge of honor by, by theologically conservative uh, Christians who were trying to distinguish themselves from liberal Protestantism. You know, at, at a time when, when liberal Protestants and mainline denominations were, were starting to deny even very basic Christian teachings like the authority of the Bible or, or the virgin birth of Jesus— these conservative Protestants called for going back to the fundamentals of faith, hence the term. You know, and I think in ways the, the Catholic traditionalist movement is, is somewhat similar to the Protestant fundamentalist movement uh, of a century ago in, in this respect, that it also has an element of reaction against liberalism in the Church. And, and like fundamentalist, the, the word traditionalist is used as a pejorative term you know, in some circles, and and traditionalist Catholics are routinely accused of being fundamentalists. So is there any truth in that charge? Well, we shall see. Anyway, when I use the term fundamentalist, uh, I'll be like Aquinas here and define things before we start, I'm I'm talking about Protestant Christians who embrace the quote-unquote five fundamentals, namely biblical inerrancy, the divine nature of Jesus Christ, his virgin birth, the resurrection of Christ, and his second coming. Okay? Now, 
There's obviously more to Catholicism than those five fundamentals, and there are many, many issues uh, on which Catholics and fundamentalist Protestants are going to fundamentally, pun intended, disagree. Um, But there's a lot of important issues that fundamentalist Christians take heat for in our culture that Catholics do, or at least should, agree with them on. You know, and unfortunately, in my experience, many Catholics, uh, Catholics who are, you know, precisely afraid to be labeled fundamentalists, are willing to kind of throw the baby out with the bathwater and end up uh, denying beliefs that are espoused by fundamentalist Christians that are also taught by the Catholic Church. And so I want to talk about five things that clearly uh, are clearly present in the Catholic faith but that Catholics can learn, perhaps from their, their separated brethren, to take more seriously. And, and I'm, this list is based on an article uh, from 2014 on the Church Pop website by a fellow with the um, rather unlikely sobriquet, Brantley Milligan. Uh, and it was called, Where Fundamentalists Are Right, Five Things Catholics Need to Take Seriously Again. Uh, and the first one is the authority of the literal sense of Scripture. Scripture is the speech of God as it is put down in writing under the breath of the Holy Spirit. What a crazy fundamentalist thing to say, right? No, actually, though, it's a quote from the Catechism of the Catholic Church, which in turn is quoting the Second Vatican Council. See, like fundamentalists, the Catholic Church, Vatican II, teaches that God is the author of sacred Scripture, whole and entire with all their parts. And therefore, quote, the inspired books teach the truth. That's right, Catechism of the Catholic Church, paragraphs 105 and 107. But the objection is raised, don't fundamentalists take the Bible too literally? And while Catholics um, may disagree with fundamentalists on literary genre or historical context, various passages of Scripture, obviously theology, uh, and, you know, how they're properly interpreted, Catholics do agree with the fundamentalists that the Bible must be taken literally. Repeat that. Catholics are bound to believe that the Bible should be taken literally, which is to say that we recognize that the the Scripture can have spiritual meanings divided into the the allegorical, the moral, and the anagogical, and that the, the literal meaning of, you know, a history and the little literal meaning of a, a psalm or a parable, you know, may be different because of the different genres. But as the Catechism makes clear, CCC paragraph 116, all other senses of sacred scripture are based on the literal. And that quote comes directly from St. Thomas Aquinas, right? So we take the scripture literally. Number two, the reality of sin and hell, and all that uh, uh, includes, all that implies, uh, judgment, repentance, the wrath of God, demons, eternal damnation, right? And, and, but some Catholics would say, all oh, those things, are, oh, that's all too negative. And in fact, many references to these things have been removed from the Scripture readings in the Novus Ordo Mise, right, the New Mass, with the excuse that no one should have to feel uncomfortable when they go to Mass. And so, and also that they would, um, when they were putting together the Novus Ordo, that they, they purposely 
sought to remove anything from the readings that would be a, a stumbling block to our separated brethren, right, to the Protestants. And that, that motive might be an ecumenical, but we also might be trying to, to please the wrong Protestants. You know, I, I, like I said, fundamentalists take a lot of heat. They take a lot of heat for, for preaching about the reality of sin and for its serious consequences for souls. And, and Catholics might find themselves wanting to reassure people that, that we don't believe in that kind of scary nonsense, but they would be wrong to do that. The fundamentalists are correct. Without Christ, all are dead in sin. And by nature, the children of wrath. That come, that's St. Paul, right, of Ephesians chapter 2. Right? The first message of Christ's own earthly ministry was repent and believe in the gospel. On Pentecost, St. Peter preached to the crowds. He said, save yourselves from this crooked generation. So if you're Catholic and those messages sound strange or too negative or too harsh, then that's an indictment of, of modern Catholic preaching and catechetics and liturgy. And I've spoken often about how certain Catholic prelates uh, you know, would want, want to teach that there's good hope, or that we can have good hope, that, that hell is empty of human souls, that no human soul goes to hell. But I don't think they're getting that idea from divine revelation, certainly not from our Lord. He talked more about hell than anyone else in the New Testament, and in fact, he talked more about hell than he did about heaven. So Catholics don't, you know, you don't need to start carrying a sandwich board, you know, repent, the end is near, <laughs> okay? Um, but, but you do need to believe and to share the truth of sin and judgment and repentance and God's wrath and the demonic and eternal damnation and hell, because to deny those things is to deny reality, as, you know, uh, revealed to us by our Lord Jesus Christ. Speaking of reality, now number three on the list, Mr. Milligan's list, is the absolute unicity of Jesus for salvation. Now, unicity, that word means unique, unparalleled, okay, uh, unequaled. The point is, Jesus is the only way to God. Not one way, not the best way, not the preferred way, the only way. No exceptions. Now, did I just say that only Catholics can go to heaven? No. What I'm saying is that no one goes to heaven except by the graces won by Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross, period. Narrow-minded, fanatical, fundamentalist, traditionalist. It's the express teaching of the Catholic Church because it is the express teaching of Jesus Christ himself. I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Um. In John 3, he says, whoever believes in him, the Son of Man, talking about himself, whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. St. Paul in 1 Timothy, there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4, there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Okay, in case there was any question about the Catholic Church's stance on this issue, that last verse from the book of Acts is actually quoted at the very top of the first page of the prologue of the Catechism of the Catholic Church. Number four, the second coming of Christ. Now, 
Catholics obviously don't believe that it's possible to predict the day or the hour of Christ's second coming. Right? That, that's, our Lord makes that explicit. Right? It's Jesus said so. And, and we certainly don't believe that uh, you know, true Christians are all going to be whisked up to heaven in the rapture before the great tribulation left behind style. Okay? That's, that is a, a theology that we would consider uh, in error. Uh, obviously, you know, Catholics are right to reject those things. But we must remember what we recite in the Nicene Creed every Sunday. Jesus will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. This is our faith. There will be a second coming of Christ. What does the Catechism say? Uh, Paragraph 673 says, Since the ascension, Christ's coming in glory has been imminent and could be accomplished at any moment. So, so look busy. Right? Um, following Scripture, the Catechism also says, Seriously, before Christ's second coming, the Church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. And God's triumph over the revolt of evil will take the form of the last judgment after the final upheaval of this passing world. Okay? That's no nonsense. Finally, Mr. Milligan's uh, fifth and final point, a thing that fundamentalists believe and Catholics need to take seriously again, uh, is a willingness to be fools for Christ. People, fundamentalists are, are routinely scorned for beliefs that Catholics agree with, you know, and, and, and at other times for beliefs with, with, for which Catholics should agree with their critics. But either way, one thing is clear, they're not ashamed to stand up for what they believe. And we have to uh, embrace that, even if it means looking foolish to others. Right? That's no nonsense. Okay, right back with our final segment. Stay tuned. Welcome back. Uh, final round here on um, No Nonsense Catholic. You know, at the end of that last segment, I was saying that um, we need to follow the example of our fundamentalist friends to be fools for Christ in the sense that, uh, you, know, if, uh, you know, if we believe that our faith has been revealed by God and faithfully preserved in the Church by the Holy Spirit, you know, do we really take that seriously or are we more concerned with what other people might think of us? You know, St. Bernard of Clairvaux said that there are three secrets to holiness, humility, humility, and humility. And if we're more worried about looking foolish than we are about being faithful to God, how smart are we really? Think about what St. Paul said to the, uh, the Corinthians. He said, where is the one who is wise? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. All right. um, I read an article actually the other day, and I think I've got a... I want to give credit where it's due. I'm actually not going to talk about the article per se. Uh, it was by Barbara J. Farah, or Farah, F-A-R-R-A-H, in Crisis Magazine. 
Uh, it's called Mary the West and Russia's Errors, a defense of, a defense of Archbishop Vigano. And apparently, you know, Archbishop Vigano made his talk uh, about the errors of Russia and so forth, and some other writer on Crisis Magazine criticized him, and then uh, uh, Miss Farah or Farah came to his defense. And I might mention that she is a convert. She was a former uh, Marxist and atheist, and that she worked in strategic management for 30 years. Okay, so this, this gal's no slouch. Uh, and, you know, you can read it if you want. Like I say, I don't want to get into that particular controversy, just that when I was reading that article, uh, she pointed to some commentary that was made by Bishop Sheen back in the day. And that he said that the modern age was actually introduced, it was not in 1917, but in 1858, with the publication of three books, Darwin's On the Origin of the Species, uh, Mills's On Liberty, and Marx's uh, Contribution to the Critique of Political Economy. The whole three of those books came out in the same year, 1858, and they summarized the errors of the modern age, right? So um, the modern age, it doesn't start with, with science versus religion because science and religion actually go hand in hand, right? There's no, no uh, but, but rather these books represent ideologies, okay? If Darwin was right, then we weren't divinely created, but rather evolved from mere matter, so there's no God, there's no fall, no creation, no original sin. If Mills was right, then there's no higher authority, higher authority than man to which we have to answer. So the only laws are those that we choose to make. And of course, if Marx was right, then, then man and human history is driven solely by economics and politics, and God and, and the spiritual things, religion, have no place at all. And it is economics and politics and not religion that can fix, quote-unquote, fix all our social problems. Now, Bishop Sheen answered, what was God's response? Because in 1858, Our Lady appeared to St. Bernadette in Lourdes and announced, I am the Immaculate Conception. See, as Bishop Sheen said, I'm quoting now, at the very moment the world was denying original sin, our Blessed Mother claimed the prerogative solely as her own. She, pardon me, alone and uniquely was immaculately conceived. Everyone else, all the rest of us, born in original sin. So according to Sheen, Mary's claim, uh, uh, Mary's uh, um, announcement, I am the Immaculate Conception, answered man's claim of independence from God and showed his errors. So her very appearance said there, there is a God. You know, she comes from heaven. So there's a God. There's more than matter. There is a heaven. Uh, her, she says, I'm the Immaculate Conception. That means man was born in original sin. Um, man owes obedience to God and reparation for the sins committed against him. Every error contained in that unholy trinity of books was contradicted in those five words, I am the Immaculate Conception. But, you know, when we think of Our Lady of Fatima warning about the errors of Russia, you know, and, and this is true in my own commentary, I talk about, you know, specifically about atheism and, and about communism. You know, although uh, Our Lady of Fatima first mentioned the errors of Russia, and that was July of 1917, the February Revolution in Russia had overthrown the monarchy and put in a democratic government. And then it wouldn't be until October that we had the Bolshevik Revolution that overthrows the democratic government and puts in a socialist uh, republic. So, um, you know, uh, the errors of communism, as Bishop Sheen points out, 
have been spreading across, the, you know, the world since, you know, for like 70 years by 1917, with the church sounding the alarm all along. You know, you need only look at uh, Pius IX's Syllabus of Errors or, or Leo XIII's Rerum Novarum, which really lays it out. You know, but those, the errors, though, weren't specific to Russia or even to communism, because obviously we've embraced a lot of that same nonsense here in the West. So why did Mary single Russia out? Well, and he says it's because the Russian Revolution created a concrete political body that incorporated all these errors. A secular state, apart from any reference to God, that claims to be able to solve the problems inherent in the human condition. So a state that said no to God, uh, to any authority higher than itself, no to the natural law, a state that would then become powerful enough to spread those errors across the world. As Sheen put it, Russia gave political form and social substance to the despiritualization of the Western world. And that is why St. John Paul II called for a new evangelization. And I tell you, if you are looking for uh, the era of peace that Our Lady promised, and we need to realize it's not going to come through the government fixing the human condition. And we should probably not spend so much time and effort trying to use the church to influence political solutions. Christ's peace, the peace that the world cannot give, comes to us only through the graces won by our Lord Jesus Christ on the Holy Cross and communicated to the world through the sacraments of the Holy Catholic Church. The great work of our day in both the active and the contemplative spheres is to help people fall in love with Christ and his church. And that's no nonsense. And that's what we're trying to do here at Virgin Most Powerful. All right, we have entered the liturgical home stretch um, before the, uh, the coming of uh, Easter. We're in Passion Tide, uh, the time in which good Catholics relive the Passion of our Lord. And uh, so I wanted to just uh, share with you, have a little medieval mentality segment. This is an old legend from the Middle Ages. Uh, it explains how the robin got his red breast. You see, apparently back in our Lord's Day, uh, the robin had a silver vest, okay? And, uh, and whenever he flew or hopped around, the sun would shine off his silver vest, and, and he was very proud and the envy of all the other birds. Um, now, on Good Friday, there was a little robin hopping around on Mount Calvary, and he witnessed the sad spectacle of our Lord forced to carry his cross up the hill and his crucifixion, and he was filled with compassion and wondered how men could be so cruel to the good God who had given him his little silver vest. And he wanted to do something to help. So he flew up to the cross, but, but the nails were too big for him to, to draw out with his little beak. And then he thought, well, perhaps I can draw out just one of the cruel thorns piercing my Lord's brow. And as he was tugging at the thorn, it pierced his own breast and his beautiful silver vest was covered with blood. And uh, there's a poem by James Ryder Randall that tells the story. A little bird that warbled round that memorable day flitted about and strove to wrench a single thorn away. The cruel spike impaled his breast, and thus tis sweetly said, The robin has a silver vest incarnadined with red. Now we can learn something. There's a lesson in this little story. That it is by our sins that Christ was nailed to the cross that I was at Calvary, and so were you. We were there represented by our sins, 
just as much as, as the Jews who mocked him and the Romans who crucified him. But if we were there by our sins, it's also true that we can be there by our good works to help relieve our Lord's pain. And so we should make up our minds, this passion tide, to redouble, redouble our Lenten works of uh, prayer and fasting and almsgiving and perhaps reach back and remove a single thorn from our Lord's brow. This is the spirit of, of St. Elizabeth of Hungary, who would not wear her crown on Good Friday. She said, uh, I cannot wear jewels when my Lord wore thorns. Or Clovis, who was king of the Franks. Clovis was the first of the barbarian kings uh, to, after the fall of the Roman Empire at the beginning of the Middle Ages. He was the first to embrace Christianity. Uh, he was to become the first among the, the Christian kings uh, you know, who would make up what became known as Christendom. And when he heard a sermon on the Passion, he was so moved with emotion that he st- stood up and took the hilt of his sword and said, O oh, Clovis, where wert thou with thy valiant Franks? Now his desire to rescue our Lord from the crucifixion is, you know, may not be 100% theologically correct, but that's the spirit that we should have for Passion Tide. If only I had been there. Now, I've spoken often how we go to Calvary at Mass. That, 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 that very same once and for all sacrifice is made present for us sacramentally on the altar. But there is no Mass on Good Friday. But if we can be there by our sins, then... We can be there by our good works, and please God, we will be. And that's it for this week. Boy, it flies by for me. I hope, uh, I, hope uh, I said something that was edifying, and I hope that you will join us again next week. Just, uh, just uh, a few days left. Uh, the rest of this week, we'll have Palm Sunday, and then uh, the next week, of course, will be the Great Feast of Easter. So we'll be back to talk about all of that and more here on Virgin Most Powerful Radio. I want to say thanks for listening. I want to say thank you especially for your support, both spiritual and temporal. We do appreciate your prayers, uh, I think, above all, and also your financial contributions that help keep us on. It's just you. We are listener-supported. So if you like what you hear on uh, Virgin Most Powerful Radio and you want us to stay in business, then please, by all means, uh, head to the website, vmpr.org. You can make a donation there. There's a donate button right on the front page. Um, become a monthly donor, make a one-time donation, or you can call the office uh, toll-free at 877-526-2151, 877-526-2151 to make a donation. All right, thank you so very much. Have a blessed Passion Tide. And uh, if I don't uh, talk to you before Easter, a blessed Easter. And in the meantime, thank you, sincerely, thank you for listening. And may God richly bless you and your family. I'm for Virgin Most Powerful Radio. See you next week.